Jeremy from The Kim Commando Show here. We've got a great interview on tap for you. Kim sat down with U.S. Congressman David Swikart. Before we dive in, let's revisit a sad fact you probably know by now. Companies make big bucks by selling your personal details. And they pass that data around between countless third parties. Private companies aren't the only ones buying your data, though. Uncle Sam has a keen interest in your personal business, too. Certain government agencies are willing to shell out cash to buy your location history and more. But is all of this legal? Well, the answer depends on where you live. Each state has its own unique data privacy laws. Navigating all that alone is a mess. That's why Kim invited Congressman David Swikart to the show to talk privacy laws and so much more. You'll get a thorough understanding of the different issues at play right now and a look at how today's tech could lead to some exciting and life-changing breakthroughs. All right, David, thanks for being here. I know that you know a lot about technology, even though you do have an older iPhone. Yeah, that and I'm still running a big old server at home, which I feel guilty about. Every time I turn it on, the house lights dim. <laughs> have you heard of the cloud? I mean, come yeah, on, well, let's just get it all out I'm there. a little compulsive of liking some of it to be resident. Yeah, I understand. Um, you know, you and I have talked a lot without microphones on about messenger RNA. Let's just dive right into that. Okay. How, how would you define this messenger RNA? Well, instead of spending too much time confusing folks on what mRNA, you know, the messenger RNA is, it, it's actually sort of the miracle what I believe it's about to bring us. We've been talking about it in some of the geeky circles for a decade. Um, before COVID, we were having these discussions of CAR-T therapies, how um, if you had certain types of cancers, we would take your DNA, we would take the um, diseases, the cancer's DNA, and we would match them up and function we had turned your cure into a software issue. Operation Warp Speed, we, lots of money was put out and we basically leaped 10 years in our technology. So to give you an idea, even companies like Tesla now are moving, investing in the equipment side of messenger RNA. And there's a belief that this technology may be about to bring us um, a vaccine for HIV, a vaccine for herpes, um, a vaccine for cancer, ta taking on a number of cancers, even malaria. Wow. And, and it's partially because we figured out how to do the messenger part of the RNA on how does your body react to this? What happens if we can supercharge your body? So does that lend itself to personalized medicine? It is the ultimate personalized medicine. And that's actually where both from a real estate technology play, all these things that are coming, um, you may actually see these little sort of pods everywhere. And that's actually where Someone is putting in your information, the disease you have information, doing the software to produce your vaccine, your cure. Um, but why this is also such a big deal for a member of Congress is 5% of our population is the majority of our healthcare spending. Okay, that's astounding to me. So I mean, only, it's only 5%? Is the majority of our healthcare spending. And the reality of it is we have a very, very ugly debt curve coming at us as a country. 
Um, a lot of it's just demographics. Baby boomers were getting older very fast as a society. What would happen if, if a fraction of that 5% that is the primary driver of most of the healthcare spending you could cure? Right. So we now have a single shot cure for hemophilia. But what happens if also some of the other things that just crush us as individuals, we were able to start curing? Um, and we're even seeing some of the afflictions that, that are just terrifying, ALS and these, maybe not a cure, but something that stops the progression. And it turns out that's both compassionate, but also has an amazing financial benefit to the future st economic stability of the country. But this Operation Warp Speed, this when the pandemic hit and we needed to find the vaccine and so that's what really spearheaded all of this, well, do you think? It was already coming. I mean, the companies like Moderna and those had already been around for years investing in this. We, there was lots of really interesting papers being published on certain types of cancers and the success of um, uh, messenger RNA therapies. But when you have that sort of pool of cash spent over a year, all of a sudden the equipment, the technology, the speed changed dramatically. And now all of a sudden, you know, in 2019, some of the technology might have cost us $350,000 to um, have that, we'll call it a cure, but the ability to attack your cancer. Today, it's a fraction of that. Why? Because we had the investment in the equipment and the technology. So you have the infrastructure now, so now we can... Well, we now know, know what the infrastructure is. Okay, that and, makes sense. And that's why, I mean, and I'm dead serious, there's, there's companies like Tesla and others that are now investing in the hardware. Because health, part of curing you now is a software problem. See, that's so bizarre to think about that, really. I mean, like, you know, think about it, like in the 1950s or 60s, you had like your local doctor mm -hmm. and you'd go there and you'd have an aches or pains, you'd have a rash and then maybe he'd give you a cream or, <laughs> uh, you know, and now you go to the doctor and everything's in that epic system and everything's all connected. But, but, and but I need you to think much more revolutionary. What happens if I come to Kim Commando, um, the digital goddess, um, and say, here's something that looks like a big kazoo. Blow into it, and it instantly tells you if you have a flu. Instantly sort of can categorize it. Um, and apparently some of the new experimental versions can actually pick up dead cancer proteins. But it could bounce off your, your phone, say, hey, she's not allergic to this type of antiviral, and order it. So all of a sudden, the medical lab is actually in your medicine cabinet. That's right there. That is sort of the revolution that is personal, fast, and crashes the price of health care. There's some problems with that, though. Um, public policy isn't ready for this technology. Um, that flu kazoo, as you might call it, is functioning illegal in today's world because you'd have Why? an algorithm writing your prescription. And not a person. Not a person. And so you would need everything from the Social Security Act that says you will see a doctor to be rewritten to um, reimbursements from HHS and those from Medicare, Medicaid, all those things. But you'd also need your state licensing laws. But it's coming. Um, you already see the experiments some of us have worked with of uh, putting things on our wrist that helps us manage our hypertension 
or you see some of the discussions of other Apple products or other things that are going to come that are going to be able to help you monitor your health. Turns out there's a lot more going on there. When you tag it up against certain algorithms, I can almost know when you're about to get sick, when you have certain things happening. What happens when personal medicine now is something you tape on your chest or put on your wrist or is in your medicine cabinet at home? And if we can embrace that technology and push it forward, it also is one of the things that helps us crash the cost of healthcare. Because in 30 years, we will have well over $100 trillion of publicly sold debt. Oh, gosh. The majority of that borrowing mm-hmm. is just to finance Medicare. Wow. 31% of Medicare is just diabetes. Is it? Yes. Diabetes is the single... If you, know, if you had to come up with a single thing, that's the number one driver you were, of debt. You were talking about that before, and I was, and I almost wanted to interrupt you to say, like, <laughs> you know, what is it that the five percent people have? I mean, I heart heart disease. Well, t- typically, that five percent actually have multiple chronic conditions okay. on top of each other. And um, look, it, it's a panacea to say, hey, we're going to cure the whole five percent. But if you can just chip away, the hemophilia is a classic example, it's a fairly small population, but a very expensive disease. And the fact we now can cure that, um, we need to bring products like that to market. Now, the shot will be incredibly expensive, but amortized over a couple of years, you're, it you're pays off. It's sort of like today, um, we have a cure for hepatitis C. If you go back several years ago, the country was facing um, an incredible cost structure of having to try to do all these liver transplants. And then we came up with a pharmaceutical that cures hepatitis C. So, so it, it's a combination of, I believe, the personalized medicine and legalizing it, changing the reimbursement, empowering individuals to be able to do things of that nature, and then moving financial resources and saying, it's time for an Operation Warp Speed on diabetes. If diabetes is a primary driver of borrowing Mm -hmm. in the United States to pay for medical costs, and yes, it's complicated. Type 1, autoimmune, type 2, a bit of autoimmune, a lot of lifestyle. It's complex, like a lot of things. But it's time we focus on curing the misery instead of making the misery something we all survive. And oh, by the way, it's some of the biggest things, it is the biggest thing we can do um, to take on U.S. sovereign debt. Before we move on, you mentioned a little bit about wearables. Okay. And it's keeping your location, uh, your heart rate, maybe your blood pressure on some of these Mm -hmm. devices. Uh, It has accelerometer, which is great if it's on somebody who's older and they fall, that suddenly 911 can be contacted. And then you have big tech, keeping track of all these other different data points. Are there any concerns in Washington about, well, I know that there are concerns, but now that we tie this into our healthcare system and that I get on Facebook and I say, I just had a great Big Mac uh, <laughs> and French fries and a vanilla shake, which I don't think I've had since I was 18. I prefer it. the strawberry shakes, but <laughs> okay. that's okay. No, no, you look... There's actually some elegance in the technology, particularly the wearables, 
on being able to make it private and encrypted token up against the algorithm that doesn't necessarily identify who it is. There's ways to do that and there's actually some services um, out there who are bringing things like that to market. Do you think your medical records are much safer sitting in a paper file in some office or no. some other electronic system or being faxed uh. from doctor's office to doctor's office as they are today? So every once in a while you'll get this pushback saying, well, I don't know if how comfortable I feel with the technology. But the fact of the matter is if I own my data and I choose what service is going to be my let's call it algorithmic backbone. And turns out, I actually believe your privacy would be much more enhanced than it's sitting in a paper file in someone's office with the hourly clerk who has access to your whole life on those paper files. You know, I'll tell you a story. I, many years ago, I had to go visit LifeLock in Tempe. Mm-hmm. And they have this big facility right there on the water. They've been there. You've been there. Okay, I don't know if you've had this experience, or maybe that was not the policy when you were there, but I was there to meet like with the heads of state at LifeLock. And they were advertisers, and they were showing me what they were having planned and stuff. Now, in order for me to meet the heads of state, I had to take out my driver's license and hand it to the receptionist. And I thought it was like, you know, you go to New York, you have to show your ID before you get an elevator. And she takes my driver's license and she keeps it. And I said, uh, excuse me, what are you doing? She says, oh, no, we, we hold your driver's license while you're here. And I said, for what purpose? She says, well, you know, we're a life lock. We have to make sure that you, know, you are who you are and you're not assuming. And be I said, I'm Kim Commando. <laughs> okay. And I said, so seriously, so you're going to hold my driver's license? And the people that I'm with, the agency folks, are like, hey, 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 just... You'll get your driver's license back. It's okay. I said, all right, well, you know, maybe this is just business. So she gets a phone call. She gets up. She goes to the other side of the elevator, goes into another room. Meanwhile, my driver's license is sitting right on her desk. For anybody to see, anybody to pick up. And I thought to myself, kind of what you were saying, like, mm -hmm. uh, okay, so here I am at a company that's supposed to, like, prevent identity theft. I just handed them my driver's license and it's sitting on this woman's desk and for anybody to walk by and see. So it, so there is a certain sense that yes, when I put everything in the cloud, I do feel more secure. Yeah. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about privacy and we're going to get into this software. We're going to talk about disruptions and so stay right where you are. We have that and a lot more coming up. Welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're in a great, great conversation. I'm so glad that you're here with Congressman Schweikert. And David, blockchain, encryption, if you just say those two words to anybody walking on the street, all of a sudden it's like, it just like this glaze comes over their face. You're like, it's like that goldfish look. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you clear out a room pretty quick. Yes, yeah, so it's like, wow, that was really exciting. That was interesting. Thanks for sharing. But it is a way for us to protect our data. So. How do you explain that to somebody? Um, I've learned to stop trying to explain what a distributive ledger is, or the concept, <laughs> or the permission-based, or those things. Uh, I've learned now to talk more about, here's the benefits to you as an individual and society, 
And oh, by the way, wouldn't you like to have a system where you can see who's looking at you? See, I would love that. And, and so I, I often will walk through saying, okay, what if my state allowed me to have a secure blockchain, um, something I can log into because I have a hunting license, I have a driver's license, I have a fishing license, I also have a real estate license, but here's my you know, personal state tax information. And it has different levels of permission. So, you know, I'm the only one that can actually see my tax returns. But the benefit of if I go on, I can see, you know, if someone's actually been looking at my data in government. So kind of like you get an alert if somebody's checking your credit? It's something like that because a properly designed distributive ledger always leaves a thumbprint. Okay. Every time someone you know, looks at you and logs in. And the concept of having all my licenses, all my benefits, because your real estate license is public. Anyone can look that up. Sure. Um, your hunting license, they sell the lists. So there's certain things that are deemed as public. Your tax information is private. Your health information is private. And we've shown over and over again that we can make your life easier we can let you know if government is looking at you. You know, whether it be a former relationship, it just has to work, it happens to work at the Department of Revenue. Right. Um, and you should have the right to always know when someone is looking at you. But also you take it to the next level. The homeless person who's sitting on the sidewalk that actually does have certain Medicaid benefits or is off their meds or has a housing allowance how does the law enforcement or the persons they're trying to help them, the ability to access that information to be able to instantly help? It turns out there's lots of levels of someone like myself that wants lots of privacy but also wants the convenience, down to folks that you would never think of in your society. That if you design it the right way, and this is not utopian. Um, you, a state like Arizona or others could put something like this together within a year because some of this is almost off the shelf but design. What do you, but what do you say to the person who, you know, government's tracking me, they know everything that I'm doing, uh, I'm gonna be using uh, DuckDuckGo or StartPage mm -hmm. that I don't get tracked and uh, I'm not on Facebook. I mean, because I hear from these people and, you know, and I've interviewed people who say, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna allow you to sell your own data. And, well, but well, a lot of people are really freaked out about government tracking. Well, two things. One, I matter of fact, I'm the one with the piece of legislation that says your data is a property right. Um, I and love that, that. And it changes, if you understand the economics of the internet as it is today, that's a revolution in the cost of advertising, you know, and you getting the benefits of your data. But for every privacy advocate, I want them to think about how do you know if someone at, in government is looking at you? You have no idea. And that's the beauty of a properly designed blockchain, is you get to know who's been touching your file. And I think that actually becomes um, you know, a, a, real, a great value. And then you, do you also get to see what's in your file? Of course. So anything that somebody may have put along the way. Yeah, I, I think because I believe all, you know, data is a property right. In that case, it's your property right. Now, included in that property right is anything that I may have sold to Facebook? 
Anything that I may have given well, them? Right or, now, right, or, right, or we're just talking government? Right now we're just talking government. Okay. If my legislation or something like that were to pass, then it's also what is actually sitting in corporate. See, um, I would. I see, I really would love to know that because it, there are ways that you can go onto Google and to look at your Google account and to see what Google thinks about you, right? So I went in and I said, okay, let's see what Google. So I was writing about it for USA Today mm-hmm. or something, and I, I wonder what Google thinks about me. So it came out that they Google thought that I was a uh, a forty seven year old man. Uh, with a, I can assure anyone listening, you are not. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> Although, you know, I have had people call the show because of my voice being so uh, deep, saying, you know, you're a guy. I know you're a guy. I'm like, no, I'm not a guy. It's really bad. I know I can't help it. But anyway, so I was a 47-year-old guy with a cancer diagnosis because I look all this stuff up for my mother, mm-hmm. uh, who's into fast cars, which you, I, yeah, I am. Yeah, okay. We'll go with that. Uh, construction, yeah. I mean, so you start looking at some of the stuff that I look mm-hmm. at that, it, you know, you, I'm not looking up but parenting tips. You see, and, and there's more you need to think about out there. There are consumer research and data firms. See, we fixate on the Googles and the Facebooks, but the fact of the matter is there's companies out there that collect every warranty card you've ever returned, every... Safeway yeah, shopping true. card swipe. Yeah. And actually, um, LifeLock actually years ago bought one of these data companies. They spent like $400 million. Apparently, you can go in, look yourself up, and you'll know what type of Rocky Road ice cream you like. <laughs> you know, that and must it, be one of those data points. I hear, I hear like, we, like every American, we have like 27,000 data, data points. points. But, but there becomes part of the interesting um, problem in the privacy discussions. We fixate on our social media presence, right. not realizing all the other touches of you used your credit card at these locations. You used your shopping discount card at you these locations. You returned this pr- yes. purchase. And it turns out that may not be sitting in your Google account, but it's sitting in a consumer marketing firm that if I want to you know, sell shoes to people with size 16, da 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 <laughs> but it turns out I can, who like Rocky Road ice cream, I can buy that type of data. And so I think there's a real misunderstanding of how pervasive using our data is and where it's actually located. Well, you know, there's a, a firm that I interviewed and we were possibly going to do a deal with. We didn't do a deal with them. But where they could identify, and this is the example they gave. Let's say you're selling fertilizer. Okay. And the example that the gal gave, I'll never forget, is that you want to reach a 32-year-old guy in Lafayette, Indiana, who makes $70,000 a year, and he has gone to a Home Depot within the last two weeks. He's listened to uh, a couple of podcasts about gardening and grass and this, uh, and he's watched a couple of YouTube videos, and he drives a Subaru. Yep. Like, whoa. Look, a deep, dark secret. Those of us in the political world, we will buy certain bits of data to customize our message because some people are interested in different subjects than others. And there may be a difference between a Jaguar driving voter who registered as Ms. That's true. Than a, and That's sure, true. Yeah, and, and, and so this is not new. It exists out there. 
But we spend so much time fixated on Facebook and Google. Right, we do. And not understanding there's this whole other world out there that's been collecting our information. And that's why I believe there's an elegance in this concept of, hey, your data is a property right. And the legislation of that concept is just hated. Really? Because think of how disruptive it would be economically. If I had to tell you, your data to us when you fill out this is worth, worth $30. And, oh, and, and, and here's how we're going to use it. Because it's not enough to have you check that little box and say you accept. I actually think you should see the dollar amount that has <laughs> what is its value. And then start to see who's willing to bid saying, hey, we'll share some of that money with you. I was just going to go there. I was just going to ask yeah. you that. Can we make money off of this? Yeah, that, that's actually um, uh, part of the method of my madness. But, but you see, if we take all this together, the ability to manage much more of your own healthcare with this, this, the incredible new sensors that you can attach to your body, um, the algorithmic access to that healthcare using that, the new messenger RNA technology. And there's actually some other things going on in synthetic biology of where we think we might be able to um, reorganize um, uh, certain DNA and those that aren't performing properly. Um, even um, some really interesting papers recently published on type 1 diabetes and being able to um, cure that. Um, still a number of steps to something for us in the desert southwest of... You know, we're heading hopefully towards a vaccine for valley fever. Yeah. But it turns out, how do we stop being living in a country that is just so, uh, uh, you know, hopefully I can make this make sense. I believe sort of the hate that we pick up so often on cable news and our blogs and this, it's a business. A lot of these folks don't understand that their stories of some of the cable news run algorithms in the back of how many times they need to say someone's name or certain types of stories for viewer retention. We can track what you click on when we send you emails or text messages or when you go to blogs. And it turns out, I don't think a lot of America who are politically active understand a lot of the inbound information we get ties back into what you were just talking about. Um, it's manipulated for us to get reaffirmation for well, someone sure. to make money off of. Which is what they do. And, you know, for all the technology that is progressing, one of the things I went into Barry this morning, I said, you're not going to believe this. And he's like, what? I said, CBS changed the name of their morning show. So it's now CBS Mornings instead of CBS This Morning. Okay, so I guess that's a big deal, right? I said, but what's fascinating to me is that they have a new set in Times Square, they have a new name, and they're sitting there on the news begging you, begging you to DVR this, begging you to mm-hmm. hit the button to record it. And the reason why? Because they changed the name of the show, they lost everybody yes. <laughs> DVR it. But you get it. You get <laughs> but it. I'm like, oh my God, that is so crazy. All right, stay right where you are. <laughs> you don't want to miss what's coming next here with me and David Schweiger. Hey, welcome back to Kim Commando Explains. We're in conversations, a great, great conversation with Congressman Schweikert. Um, COVID changed everything, didn't it? it? I believe it's sped up a bit of what, where we were actually going to go. 
um, and then proved a number of things actually work. Um, I'll give you the classic and, and one that's near and dear to me, telehealth. Oh, yeah. I am, um, I, I'm going to say it this way, it's a little vanity comment. I, I'm sort of the god of telehealth. <laughs> For years now, I've been trying to, to get this that? concept saying, you know, my, my phone can also be an adjunct to my, my medical support. There was an army of lobbyists for years who would go to war with me and, and a couple other members on both sides of the aisle who would often sponsor with me telehealth bills for getting the reimbursement and making it more accessible. And it was I was never going to get a hearing on you know these telehealth pieces of legislation. Then the pandemic hit and we took my legislation and made it law and suddenly you know, all these arguments saying, well, older people won't figure out how to work their FaceTime <laughs> or won't figure out how to talk to their doctor. They won't, won't want that. They well, need it, it turns out it was an incredible success. And far beyond just FaceTiming with a medical professional, people were getting things saying, hey, put this on your wrist, put this on your chest, um, you know, send us a sample. We're going to do. And it turns out it wasn't just talking to someone was your um, telehealth. It sometimes was just the data off your body. Right. Do you know that expansion that we're all living with right now on being able to use telehealth goes away the day they declare the pandemic over? Why is that? Because there's an army of lobbyists who hate telemedicine. And, and, and think about the economics. What happens when I no longer have to go to the urgent yeah, care center right. because I can get my health care through my phone? You're I right. no longer have to run to the emergency room. I no longer have to do this. I don't that. have to take my kid to the sick side yeah. of the room instead of the Yeah, exactly. Side. Even though you know that there's no sick and, and so healthy side. And you start side. to tie in <laughs> that telehealth with the wearables, with the things, you know, the medical lab that you can have now in just a couple little, you know, things in your medicine cabinet. And you start to understand the economics of how we deliver health care. Now, now, I've run into that. Me, yep. because my mother is a patient at Mayo Clinic and at MD Anderson. So I sent, I sent my Mayo, her Mayo records to MD Anderson in Houston, Texas. And I said, well, can we do a telehealth with the doctors there? Because you guys can just open up. We're all on the Epic system. You can mm -hmm. all open it up. Which, by the way, they say they couldn't because I need to send the, the CT scans on CD for some reason. On CD? Yes. Do they still have those? I, you know what? <laughs> It was astounding to me, but I was informed that there's no telehealth is not allowed between the states of Texas and Arizona. And it often has to do with, is it allowed or it's not reimbursed? Oh, okay. Maybe, well, they said it wasn't permitted, but yeah. it was probably that, a money train. But too. that is, yeah, but it's, look, it's always about the money. Remember, money, power, vanity, but most of the time it's actually <laughs> about the money. And you start to realize, um, if healthcare costs are actually the primary driver of U.S. debt, you know, the huge debt cliff that's about to overtake the United States, have a revolution in the cost of healthcare. Obamacare, the ACA, the Republican alternative, Medicare for all, those are financing bills. You know, what the political class doesn't tell the truth. Can you imagine that? That saying, well, you're going to get this and that, but it's who gets to pay and who gets subsidized. We never have the conversation of what can we do healthcare-wise, preventative-wise, technology-wise to disrupt the actual cost of healthcare. Can you have a revolution in that cost? And my argument is if we would embrace everything from the telehealth 
to the wearables, to the algorithmic healthcare, and then properly um, let it move across state lines, um, properly reimburse it, you could actually crash the price of healthcare. Because how much of that medical bill you're about to get is for the real estate? <laughs> yeah. Is for maintaining the parking garage? Sure. Is paying the air conditioning? It's not actually what made you better. And, and we don't think about all these other inputs that we have put into healthcare. Well, that same sort of concept now goes into work. If you start to think of post-pandemic, um, how many, you know, you have, most people have no idea the size and scale of organization, you know, the Kim Commando yeah. show requires and research and all those things. But what happens when so many of your people can actually do it from a oh. remote laptop? Which, you know what? Which they love. They absolutely love not having to get dressed, pack a lunch, get in their car. Yeah, I'm still a little freaked out about how many people aren't bathing, but that's a whole different <laughs> <Yeah>. discussion. <laughs> yeah. Or brushing their teeth. I mean, sometimes I'll have somebody say, you know what, is this an important meeting? Do I need to put like lipstick on? I'm like, mm, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. If I go through like, one more Zoom meeting to find out the person's wearing shorts. <laughs> yeah, um, that's not a but, good thing. But the, the concept, and it's going to change again. But the reality of it is we saw some remarkable productivity numbers, even though people weren't walking into the office. Example? Um, j just the, the number of outputs, the number of you know, uh, people who do their writing, their research, their well, financial I can tell you, our, forecasts, we, those You know things. what? And when COVID hit, when COVID hit, I needed to shut down the Bloomberg TV show. And I sat there two weeks post not doing television. I mean, because I would do radio and television. And I thought, wow, this is great. This is phenomenal. I don't, I'm not tired as crap every Saturday and Sunday that I don't have the energy to do anything. Well, and then, wait, then reallocated, pivoted some of the business. Um, some people left by attrition, which I thought was interesting to me. I had one person leave who actually wanted to work from home like a year before the pandemic, and I said no. And then when this person actually did, they discombobulated. <laughs> but everybody came for the cause type mm -hmm. of thing. And people went beyond, I, might, I know my team did, went beyond the call of duty. They, they worked harder, they worked smarter, they thought of different ways to fix things. And when I look at the end of the year for 2020 and now as I project what 2021 is going to be, you know, we're doing phenomenal. We're doing it's, great. So now stretch that through society. And now we have to sort of think about, because there's some weird numbers that I have to work with. Um, like this last unemployment report, we had 800 plus thousand Americans just disappear. That's a from lot. The no, it's huge. It, it's huge. And I'm surprised that wasn't one of the headlines. But, but, so what do you mean? They just... They, they, they're no longer looking for work. Now, is, is that, that because... They're... We don't know yet. Okay. We're trying to figure out. But we also know there was just an incredible increase about a year ago of people starting micro-businesses. I'm going to make things out of my house or I'm going to provide this sort of service or this sort of a, the classic gig economy. Right. Um, are we catching those people in the data? Is there a whole nother way people are making a living? 
you know, are the, are, is this an occasion where... They're on people, OnlyFans. <laughs> yeah, or, but, well, but are they saved up enough money from the stimulus checks and those things to make some of these transitions? We don't know yet, and we probably won't know for a few months as things sort of shake out economically. But what happens to the value of certain types of real estate? Sure. What happens to the movement to housing that actually I can also run my business out of? What right. happens to local zoning laws and That's lots true. of things of those natures? So just as that local zoning law, I would equate to the state medical licensing allowing the algorithm to write a prescription. We're in a time of disruption. That's, you know what, you're right, David. And, and trying right. to tie it together saying, is government, particularly right now, or the incumbent business model, the barrier to what makes us wealthier, more prosperous, and much healthier as a society? And look, um, I, 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 somehow I enrage a lot of people um, when I do a lot of these discussion groups, but a lot of what we do in Congress is a protection racket. We protect incumbents, not incumbent members of Congress, but incumbent business models from competition, from disruptive ideas. And I think for where we are demographically, we're getting older very fast as a society. We desperately need robust economic growth if we're going to be able to even pay our debt to be able to keep going. Um, maybe we need to sort of rethink how we do public policy. And that is, instead of trying to control every aspect, the arrogance of Congress. Um, what's the running joke? Um, two times in life you think you know everything? When you were 13 years old and the day after you get elected. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> and stop thinking we know what the future looks like. Get the hell out of the way and let the disruptions happen. And you always get the person that says, well, what about you know, the people that work there? What about all the people that used to work at Blockbuster Video? Right. They found something. They found something. And, and in many ways, they went to something much more prosperous, much more opportunity, much more valuable for their skill sets. And I no longer have to go down you know, to the neighborhood strip center and get a little silver disc and shove it in to watch a movie. The disruption's all around us. But if Blockbuster Video had hired enough lobbyists... We'd still have a Blockbuster Video. We'd still have a Because <laughs> the Congress would have slowed down the Internet. And we see that right now with, hey, if you want um, telemedicine in rural America, um, we have low-Earth orbiting satellites now. Everyone, you know, you know it's there. there the, the solutions, the that's, disruption that's is around one, us. That's one thing that just drives me bonkers. And without speaking disparagingly about President Biden, because I always like to remain very neutral, but you know, there's this whole broadband plan mm -hmm. to get. We're spending trillions of dollars to get the internet into well, the rural communities when we can just use a low orbiting satellite it, without it without stringing okay. any type of fiber. I don't understand it, that. It, it's it's billions. And the fact of the matter, what was our, our, our rule of thumb? Money, power, vanity, but it's almost always about the money. Yes. What happens if you have lots and lots of organizations out there that um, do lots of really high-quality lobbying, they're lovely people, saying, pay us so we can run this piece of copper or this piece of fiber <laughs> out to the middle <laughs> of nowhere, where the fact of the matter is... Um, 
there's going to be a 5G tower put up and exactly. they're going to use their phone. Or right. they're going to use the new satellite dish that just Starlink. looks like a big oval dinner plate. Every portion of North America right now, or maybe even by this time next year, is going to have broadband. And yet Congress will authorize billions and billions and billions and billions of subsidies to run wire, to run fiber out to the middle of nowhere. I just don't understand that at of course, all. But no, once again, all right, it, you're it, right. it's, you know, I, I can't tell you how many members of Congress I meet with and say, the rural, the internet divide has been solved. It's low earth satellites. Right. It's, and it's going to be even 5G towers and Elon pods Musk and nodes. Elon Musk is putting them out there. And well, okay. there's actually five companies that are launching. And people just look at you in horror saying, you know, like they've, how could this be? No one told me. And there's the classic problem of we need to keep pushing, just as I'm fixated on blockchain, beyond its crypto applications, being something that can protect our privacy and make us healthier and wealthier and helps often the poorest in our society if we do it the right way. But I get a lot of folks that get wrapped up in wanting to try to understand the technical aspects. I need them to understand the benefits first. So Congressman Schweikert, it's been so great having you here. Um, any final thoughts? Look, um, and maybe I'm a bit of a techno um, utopian, but you are too. I am. We, I, I, that's probably why we get along. <laughs> but, yeah, and we should probably disclose, we've been friends for Forever. a very yeah. long time. Um, how do you and I help folks understand that a lot of the frustration, the misery, the, the sort of the hate that's in our society are folks who are making money off that. And then if we could get just an understanding that if we can push forward on technologies that are disruptive, but disruptive in the way that makes us healthier, makes us more productive. Um, you know, make it, yes, it means there will be change, and change is sometimes uncomfortable. The future can be pretty darn great, but if we don't do these things, um, our demographics, our debt, it could be really, really ugly. It turns out technology is one of our only paths to make the productivity, to make the economic growth actually happen. And we need to push each other to embrace it and understand it. I want to emphasize something I found really important. Tech utopias and the way you can change the future. It seems like every day we learn about new changes in the world of tech. If you're not informed, it can feel like you're Dorothy flying through the middle of a tornado. Just remember this, you are much more than a spectator. With the right resources, you can be an active participant. Speaking of being much more than a simple spectator, I have a great resource for you. If you want to learn more about the world around you, join the Commando community. Go to getkim.com to try it for free for 30 days. Thanks for listening from Kim and the whole team here at Commando Headquarters. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find Kim's expert advice 24-7 at commando.com.